It is great to be here with all of you, and I just want to thank our worship team. Amazing songs that they let us in, and also amazing choices of, of music for this morning. I am just, uh, I'm taken aback actually by uh, how connected to the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at right now, um, the lyrics to that, 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 that music is. Um, really, 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 really cool. Um, okay, so I want to ask a question. Has anyone ever said to you, hey, you are having a bad attitude? Okay, I've heard it once or twice, um, and maybe if you haven't heard it, somebody's thought it about you, okay? So we're all on the same, uh, the same level there, okay? Uh, we're all guilty of having a bad attitude from time to time. But I want to read a story uh, as, as we start. I'm just going to read part of it. It's a, it's a bit long. Uh, it's a children's story. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could, could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and Albert Mayo was his next best friend. And that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the ice cream, uh, the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds. And Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in the dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was, because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist, and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week, and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said, I'm going to Australia. I'm going to skip to the end. This is bedtime now. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that. 
even in Australia. See, Alexander could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day right from the beginning. And surprise, surprise, it was. Um, see, have you ever had an attitude like that? I think we, we can all agree that we, we have had a bad attitude from time to time. Our attitude influences our perspective. It influences the way we interact with other people. It, inter- it influences the way we see the world. And sometimes it even bends the facts. That's why two people seeing the same car accident both have different stories. That's why two kids playing in the same room together both have different explanations for how that window got broken or how that glass of water got spilled over. That's why two, uh, a husband and a wife can have two different perspectives on who's right and who's wrong, both thinking that they're right. Attitude makes a big difference on how we see the world, and it, and it does matter. It's a huge factor, and I don't know if this has crossed your mind ever or you've ever um, realized this, but this took me a long time to realize that attitude is a choice. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about choosing and cultivating the attitude of Christ even in the face of difficult situations and circumstances. We're going to say that that should be the aim of everyone who professes to follow Christ because it leads to living Christ-like and bringing glory to God. This morning we'll look at Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 7, and I hope you'll be encouraged to choose and cultivate an attitude of rejoicing, gentleness, and peace, even in the midst of a no-good, terrible, very bad day. So let me... Let me just read that. We'll start with verse, verse 4, and we'll, and we'll be going to verse 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So let's get oriented here to the text. This is Paul writing to the Philippians. And this is a letter to the church. It's not just to individuals. As they're facing troubling circumstances. The Philippians wouldn't need Paul's encouragement if there wasn't some discouragement or at least the potential for discouragement. They didn't need this word uh, of gentleness if there wasn't the potential um, for uh, selfishness. They wouldn't need this word of peace uh, if there wasn't the potential for um, that lack of peace. And as we look at the context, we see plenty of reasons to have bad attitudes. Paul, their leader, he's the one that planted the church, is in prison. One of their members almost dies trying to save Paul, or serve Paul. They seem to be under attack by unbelievers. There's cults and religious groups all around Philippi. They're surrounded. 
legalists, libertines, and squabbles within the body, not to men- mention a specific issue with Syndike and Yodia mentioned three, uh, in the f- previous few verses. Paul's not writing to a church that he feels is uncred- incredibly unhealthy. In fact, the tone is one of joy and rejoicing over the f- their faithfulness and kindness, but even the healthiest of churches and individuals will face circumstances that test faith, and warrant the word that Paul speaks in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. So let's drop in. First of all, choosing and cultivating the attitude of Christ means choosing to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. This doesn't mean don't ever be sad. This doesn't mean don't ever process grief. This doesn't mean... uh, shut that away, and just pretend to be happy, put on a smiling face whenever something bad happens. That is not at all what we're talking about. Jesus wept. The scripture says rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We're called to to, uh, express emotion. We're called to process grief. But as we stated in the beginning, our attitude in the midst of grief will color everything. Choosing to rejoice is a matter of obedience, not dependence on emotions. That's how this can work. This is a, this is a command, not a suggestion. Rejoice, exclamation point. I'll say it again, rejoice, just so we're clear. Rejoicing is about the object of our rejoicing, not about the feelings and emotions we're experiencing. Emotions fluctuate. Emotions change all the time. Our Lord never does. Paul chooses to rejoice even in the worst circumstances. Think about this letter. If we look at the letter as a whole, these four chapters, this this letter has been called the joyful letter. And joy is mentioned specifically at least 15 times. That's a choice that Paul's making. He's choosing to rejoice, even as he's writing from prison. And rejoicing is a matter of contentment, not dependent on circumstances. So not dependent on emotions, not dependent on circumstances either. Because situations change, but our Lord never does. Paul and Silas knew this as they sat in prison, aching bodies recovering from being beaten. And yet they sang such sweet songs from their prison cell. Imagine sitting in that prison cell, battered and bruised, shackled in chains, yet singing such a melody of joy. Imagine writing repeatedly of joy and hope while imprisoned and waiting for a trial whose verdict was completely uncertain. Next we go on to uh, choosing gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So part of choosing and cultivating that attitude of Christ is choosing gentleness. Now this is a spirit of calm that certain people demonstrate and live by, uh, and they live in better than, uh, than some of us. Most of us drift in and out of this calmness, um, but some people seem to just have a better grasp of this. They're not lethargic or lazy. They're extremely passionate. But at the same time, at the same time, they're calm. 
Okay, um, let's look at Jesus for a second. He, I think, okay, think about this. I think about Jesus. He's taking a nap in the boat, and circumstance is storms all around. The disciples are freaking out. Okay, they're losing their minds. He's taking a nap. So we know this already. Jesus is one of the most passionate, is the most passionate man ever to walk the earth. But he's taking a nap in this situation. And this is kind of funny to me. He is trying to prove a point. He's so good, he can prove a point while taking a nap. Okay, so he's, he's in the boat and he's calm, he's at peace because he wants to prove a point. Look, you guys don't have enough faith. Where is your faith? Um, think about it. Jesus came in the flesh and he could have been the mightiest warrior to ever walk the face of the earth, but he came as a meek, gentle carpenter. And then, to take, a st- take it a step forward, forward, he willingly gave up his life for all of humankind. So what does choosing gentleness mean? It doesn't mean you're spineless or weak. Let's just get that, let's get that off the table. Kids still need direction and love. The, sta- the saints still need to be sharpened in love. Our spouses still need to speak the truth in love to us. <laughs> Our friends still need accountability and love. All this takes great courage and strength. Gentleness is a matter of selflessness, not selfishness, not entitlement or getting what's yours. What would this look like at home, at work, at school for you? If you're treated badly or disrespected, how would you respond? Even if it was abundantly clear that you were wronged, and that you had every right to retaliate. Would you take matters into your own hands, quick eye for an eye? Or would they look more like turning the other cheek? So earlier this, um, earlier this month, I was on a ride with, uh, uh, I was riding bike with one of my friends. And I, I want to protect his identity, so um, we'll just call him Tim. Um, <laughs> It's a little bit sensitive, so I just drew like the most common name I could think of, and we'll go with Tim. Um, that way, that way we're, we're straight. Um, here's the deal. I was riding with him, and we're about to start this crazy sprinting piece, okay? Um, it's me, another guy, and we're riding and riding, and things are accelerating. Intensity is going up. Uh, everybody's getting ready to essentially race. We're going we're gonna to hammer this out for the end. And then... Uh, little accident happens. Uh, two guys collide. Uh, Tim goes down. Right, uh, at, so a fall at high speeds. I, I don't know if, how familiar you are with biking, but we're probably in the range of uh, 15 to 17 miles an hour, and a fall at high speed is not fun. Since I started riding in the early 2000s, I've fallen twice, and the first time I fell, uh, after, after I stopped sliding and uh, looked down at my, I stood up, looked down at my hands, ripped my glasses off my face, threw them on the ground, some choice words as well um, that I'm not going to repeat 
here. Um, it was the, about the most immature response I could, could muster at that point. Uh, the guys I was riding with at that point are turning back. They're seeing me do all this, having my little uh, temper tantrum because I fell. Um, it was my fault, by the way, that I fell. Um, and I had an opportunity to show gentleness, but I didn't. Now, let's jump back into our story that we started with. Tim takes this nasty fall, goes to the ground. It's not his fault, where in my story it was my fault. It's not his fault. The guy we're riding with um, uh, was very apologetic, but here's, here's what struck me about this situation. Tim got up, and he showed gentleness. He showed forgiveness, and he showed kindness when what I would have expected would have been a straight rage festival. Like if it had been me, I don't know if I would have been that mature. Okay? Um, What he did in that moment demonstrated to me and the other guy that we were riding with, Christ. He demonstrated that Christ-like attitude, that selflessness, that, hey, I'm entitled to get mad here. I'm entitled to seek out money to fix this bike. I'm entitled to um, even throwing some choice words out there. But he didn't. And I think that that is a result of practice. I think that's a result of him choosing and cultivating an attitude of Christ, an attitude of gentleness. And that's what we're talking about this morning. I think in the script of Tim's mind, he'd written over the terrible, no good, very bad day monologue. He, instead of saying, hey, what can I get for myself out of this? What do I deserve? What's my right? He said something like, that's biking. Things happen. This is not the end of the world, and I'm going to forgive rather than escalate my own emotions because I feel entitled to them. Plus, I get to delight in a continued friendship and enjoy the delight of God who smiles on this kind of grace and love if I take responsibility for my response. That's countercultural. To not go after our right, because in the bigger picture it's right, is huge. A friendship could have been broken that day, but it wasn't. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says gentleness. Then, this interesting sentence, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Now, this is is an interesting one because it's hard to tell if Paul is talking about proximity, as in closeness and distance, or if he's talking about time, like close in time. The two options are he's either talking about, hey, Jesus is going to be coming back soon. He's near. Or Jesus is near with us, providing support, uh, walking with us, being uh, the one that we can depend on. I think we can, I think it's safe to say that we can take both of those meanings here. The Lord is near. 
Let's keep going. Choosing and cultivating the attitude of Christ means choosing not to worry. Paul doesn't tell us that everything's going to be okay. He doesn't say everything's going to work out. Instead, he identifies the problem, gives a procedure to follow, and a product to expect. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, wait a second here. That is the most unhelpful sentence I've ever heard. Do not be anxious. If you're anxious right now, if, you are, you, if you have ever struggled with anxiety, you know that that, that sentence is not going to help you. Thank God there's more to this passage. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to say up front, unapologetically, that I believe anxiety is a sin. I also want to say that I personally have wrestled with the sin of anxiety. Why do I say that? Why do I say that anxiety is a sin? Because I think, because I, I think anxiety is a wrong focus, and I think it's a lack of faith. It's either both or one of those two, wrong focus or lack of faith. When we're anxious, we're not trusting in God. When we're anxious, we're focused on self instead of the God who can actually do something about our situation. But anxiety doesn't mean we don't ever, choosing not to be anxious doesn't mean we choose just to not have any concern about anything, to not care. Concern, healthy concern, is fine. Concern motivates while anxiety constipates. Did you hear that? Concern motivates while anxiety constipates. Okay, you, know, you know this. You know this. A bit of stress can motivate you to get the project done, to get that, to get that work done. But anxiety, that starts to shut everything down. Product, productivity goes down to, it either slows or it goes to nothing. It's really hard to focus on where you are and what you're doing when your mind keeps running to questions that start with, what if? What if? What if I fail? What if the results are not good? What if she doesn't like the restaurant? What if I say something stupid? And let's go further down the path to self-implosion. As we play the tape forward, you begin to answer your own questions. If I fail, I won't be able to recover and my life will be ruined. If the results are not good, I simply will not be able to stand it. If she doesn't like the restaurant I take her to, then I am, quite frankly, a worthless human being. Maybe if I, if I say something stupid, that means I am stupid. Maybe I should just move to Australia. Look at that. We move from a hypothetical outcome to categorical statements about identity, self-worth, and life in general that are masquerading as the truth. This is not about, this is not the truth, and this is not the internal script of a person 
imbued with the Holy Spirit and, power, and his power and presence. This is not the script of a person that leads to Christ-like behavior. See, choosing, choosing not to worry is a matter of obedience. We have a, ch- we have a choice to make. See, this was revolutionary to me personally. I used to think I had no control over worry, anxiety, fear, uh, anger. I was completely at the mercy of whatever, uh, whatever emotion was coming my way. I believe that the situation was the cause of my emotion. I believe that whatever was going on around me was causing the emotion. I had nothing in my power that I could do. I didn't understand that emotions were something that I was doing to myself. But if I read God's word as a command here, and an all-inclusive command at that, I have to realize that I have a choice. I can either obey or disobey. This is convicting, because now anxiety moves to the realm of rebellion against God. It moves to the realm of sin. But on the flip side, this is incredibly empowering and freeing because now, according to Paul, I must have the ability not to be anxious. I can take responsibility for my emotions. I can choose to cultivate a new attitude. I can rewrite the script of my mind. Most of all, our anxiety lives in the realm of things that we can't control. It's either birthed as we look back to the past, the things that have already happened and will never be changed, or it's projected into the future, a hypothetical future. Again, things that probably will never happen. What will we eat? What will we wear? How will I find a job? How will I keep a job? How will I find a wife? How will I keep her? How will I make money? How will I keep money? All future tense. We mull over and over and rehearse these things in our mind and they've either been warped or twisted by the passage of time or the fallible attitude and perspective until we're certain that today will be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Okay, but how is it possible? How is it possible to choose and cultivate not being anxious? Okay, okay, okay. All right, now let's not get all worked up and anxious about it. Okay? Luckily, Paul continues on to tell us that God will fix every external situation and every troubling circumstance. No one's going to argue with that? Okay, I'll read it again. Luckily, Paul continues to tell us that God will fix every external situation and troubling circumstance. Nope. No way. No way. This is not what he's saying. This has very little to do with the external circumstance. It's quite astounding how the Bible takes this issue and turns the mirror right on us. Okay, we're thinking about what's happening. We're thinking about, ah, this and that event. We're thinking about this and that person. But the Bible says, nope. Look here. Look in your heart. Turn that mirror on yourself. Look at yourself. And it says, look at your motives. 
It says, look at your focus. Look at your attitude. So how do we get there? Paul gives us, in verse 6, the procedure. So let's look at, let's look at that. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So this isn't, uh, Paul, Paul calls us to pray and practice. So part of choosing, um, part of cultivating a life that's not anxious is to pray and practice. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. We can't just decide, hey, I'm going to pray continually, and then it happens. This is something that we have to choose and cultivate. This is something that we have to pray and practice. Prayer takes practice. A disciplined life takes practice. It takes a decision, and then it takes action. So I, I think about it this way. Imagine one day you just say, hey, you know what? I want to be a, a World Cup soccer player. And then you don't do anything. You're not going to wake up the next morning and suddenly be a World Cup soccer player. It takes practice. You're going to have to practice more than once a week. You're going to have to practice day in and day out. And even then, you might not, you might not make it to the big leagues. But when we, when we just say, hey, yeah, prayer, let's do that, and then we don't actually do it, it's as silly as saying, hey, I want to become a better soccer player, but I don't want to practice. It's going to, be, it's going to take effort, and it's going to be a struggle. And I just want to point out the type of prayer that we're talking about is life-changing. The type of prayer that we're talking about, where we go and lay everything before the Lord, where we open ourselves to the Lord. It's not just a flippant prayer like, hey, help me do better on this test. It's, hey, Lord, search me. Shine your light in. What's going on with me? What do I need to change? Where is my focus wrong? Where, where are my motivations wrong? And it's a complete and utter surrender. And it's here in prayer that the supernatural process of transformation can take place. It's here where we meet God and we unload everything that's on our minds, everything that's making us anxious, everything that's making us worried beyond belief. And he can say, I know. I know. Because we have a God like this, we have to approach God with reverence and a thankful heart. That's what, that's what Paul says next. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. With thanksgiving. This is going to take cultivating a new approach. This is going to take intentionally looking around with eyes to see the gifts that God is giving. This is going to take looking around at those people in your life, those those blessings in your life, taking stock and saying thank you and repeating that script. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
And then we get to the real, genuine, lasting gratitude as it begins to take hold, as we're practicing being thankful, looking for things, looking for the gifts of God that he's dropping all throughout the day, then our attitude becomes thankful. Our words change from lies to truth. The world changes from dark to light. And hopeless changes to hopeful. A terrible, no good, very bad day changes to joy, love, and peace. And here's what peace does. Peace works deep. This is God doing something in the heart, as we just said. Peace transcends or bests all our understanding. You can try and figure it out. You can try and crack the code. But Paul is telling us we're never going to get to the bottom of it because there is no top and bottom of it. This kind of peace transcends what we can imagine and comprehend. And when compared to um, anything, it's bigger than anything we can think of. It's more significant than anything we can think of. And if, we looked at, and if we look back at the, our text here, the, the word guard comes up. With thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a military term. The Philippians would have, understand, uh, would have understood this. They, w- they would know what a, a Roman uh, garrison looked like. They would know what a military outfit would have looked like. And this would have immediately called to mind a guard, a force that was willing to stand up to anything, that was capable of standing up to anything. No matter what the circumstances, your heart and mind will be protected by this military outfit. Think about it in modern terms, by the guys in black and white with the earpiece. Okay? They're setting up shop around your heart and around your mind to protect you from whatever's happening in that situation, whatever's happening externally. So think about it. Where have your worries and other irrational emotions taken you? What has your anxiety done for you lately? If it has driven you anywhere but to the feet of God, if it has driven you anywhere than to your Savior, you're missing an opportunity to choose and cultivate the attitude of Christ and experience a peace that's beyond compare. See, we don't find peace looking for peace. We find peace as a byproduct of seeking and finding Jesus. His kingdom. How, do you th- How the heck do you seek his kingdom? You seek the king. How the heck do you seek the king? Prayer and petition. That's what Paul tells us here in these passages. It should be as easy as choosing between cake or death. Really, it should be a simple choice, but it's so hard for us. 
if we actually made the choice more often, we wouldn't really need this word of Paul, this word from God. Imagine you're a parent making ter- you're a parent and you're watching your child or children making terrible decisions and going down a destructive path. Your anxiety increases with every step your son or daughter makes toward impending doom. Then suddenly it hits you. Life is uncertain. Life is not in my control. My son or daughter's life is not in my control. And then right before you throw up your hands and drown in a fatalistic sea of anxiety and fear and anger and discouragement, another thought comes to your mind. Maybe it's not about fixing my kid. Maybe it's about fixing me. So that when my kid turns out to be like me, I actually like who they've become. Then, as you turn your face to your own reflection in the mirror, it all becomes clear. This anxiety, discouragement, anger, fear about the external situation, your kid, this is about me. This isn't about my son or daughter. This is about me, how I view my self-worth and value. I'm broken, and I need to turn to the only one that can fix me, the only one that's chosen to use me even though I'm broken and incomplete, the God that died a perfect death that I could be perfectly redeemed. What if, the kid, what if my kids saw me live like that, a life devoted to the only one who can do anything about tomorrow? What if my kids saw me living out, do not be anxious, because my eyes are fixed on Jesus and I'm living like I actually trust him? What if they saw a life devoted to Jesus and me that one day they became like me and I liked what I saw and what I saw was Christ? Even when we're having a terrible, horrible No good, very bad day. We can still rejoice. We can still demonstrate gentleness and be free of anxiety because we have a God who finds great delight in his created people, loves us to the point of death, and is the only one that actually knows our pain and controls the future. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for being a God who knows, for being a God who loves. Lord, thank you for sending your son so that we could have an example of what it looks like to have a Christ-like attitude, what it looks like to rejoice in every situation, what it looks like to not be discouraged but to show gentleness, to not be selfish but selfless, to love. Lord, thank you for showing us what it means, what it means to rejoice, to love, and to have peace. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to discover that peace that surpasses all understanding and that we would look to you and only you for that peace. And we would do it because our peace witnesses to you. 
our peace says, speaks volumes about who you are. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.